All right, well, if you didn't receive the teaching notes on the way in and you'd like those, go ahead and raise up your hand. We have our usher team ready to distribute them to you. You can turn in your Bibles to Song of Solomon chapter four. The teaching notes are available online as well for those that are joining us by the web stream this morning. Song of Solomon chapter four. Um, The title for the message this morning is The Delight of Christ, uh, Preparing for Testing. Kind of the general idea is that the way in which Christ prepares us for increased testing, trial, difficulty is often far different than the way that we would maybe prepare ourselves. Um, When I think of something that's coming up in the future, I would imagine that it would be just knowledge that would prepare me to endure what was coming uh, to overcome it or to be victorious through it, etc. And while that may be true to a degree, the, the way that Jesus prepares our hearts, um, the way that he positions us and, and leads us and guide us, guides us through the various seasons of our lives is you know, very different than the way that we would pr- probably lead ourselves. And one of the ways that's so shocking is that Jesus wants to prepare us by speaking his delight over us and causing us to be confident in his affections and in his love for us. I mean, he puts a lot of emphasis in the word of God on getting his people filled with love, not just filled with information and filled with knowledge. He wants us to experience the riches of his gospel, the gospel of grace. Two weeks ago, I shared a little bit more on that out of 2 Corinthians 5, the gospel of grace and how we're a new creation in Christ. And you know, this morning I have just even more good news for you. Not only has Christ legally changed your status before him, I mean, he's caused you to come to life. He is changed your, uh, your orientation in him. He's caused you to be sons and daughters of the living God legally. You know, I mean, if you go down to the courtroom in heaven and look up your name, you belong to Christ forever and ever because of the cross. It is powerful. But the work of the gospel doesn't just end there. It doesn't just end at the legal change of your position before God as righteous and justified. It actually goes even further. God wants you to experience the riches of his grace as it pertains to his delight and his affection over you. You know, one of the big challenges, I think, for, uh, uh, for someone who's being adopted is actually believing that they belong to the family and receiving and enjoying in the family relationship that's there. You know, legally on paper, you can go down to a courtroom and sign your name and adopt some kids, but the, the time that it takes for those kids to actually believe that they're a part of the family and that they're freely loved and freely joyed, you know, enjoyed, it doesn't always happen immediately. And the Lord wants to convince us of the great delight, I mean the ridiculous favor that we have because of the cross. 
that not only are we forgiven of our sins, but we are enjoyed by God himself in the deepest and most profound way at the moment of the new birth, even as immature believers, even as just newly uh, born-again Christians, we receive the full delight and affection of God. And it is powerful. We've got to renew our minds. We've got to get into agreeing with the heart of God on these various themes revealed to us in the Scripture. Now, one of the places that reveals so much of the way that Christ sees the bride, that's us, his people, is in the book of the Song of Solomon. And I'm gonna read this. Now, if you're newer to the book of the Song of Solomon, uh, maybe you've never heard this type of message before, I wanna encourage you to not get tripped up by some of the language, the poetic nature of the language that's here. And there's a spiritual meaning behind some of these terms, and I want you to not get tripped up on just the face value you know, language of a husband that is in love with his wife and writing to her, that is an interpretative uh, model for the Song of Solomon, but there's a spiritual interpretation, and it's speaking of Christ's affections for his church, for his people. I wanna read this, Song of Solomon 4, beginning in verse nine. This is the Lord, the bridegroom, speaking over the bride. It's speaking over you and speaking over I, and it's speaking over us corporately. I believe that this is an important message for us at Forerunner Church and at a part of this spiritual family. The Lord is saying this. He says, you have ravished my heart. I am overcome with joy and delight because of who you are and who I've made you to be. He says, you've ravished my heart with one look of your eyes with one glance, with one turning to Christ, with one weak yes of our heart, even this morning as we're worshiping the Lord, regardless of how you feel emotionally and where your life is at and how healthy you are in this area and how productive you are in this area. I mean, when you open your mouth to God, when you open your heart to him and just say, Lord, I adore you, I love you, it overcomes his heart. I mean, he's completely, he's overwhelmed at one glance of your eye. I mean, I think of the one glance as like just the fleeting thought. I'm driving, I'm on my way to work, and I just have just one thought of the Lord. Lord, thank you for your provision. Thank you for your mercy, how you came after me and redeemed my life. Just that one little glance, it says he's overcome with emotion because of that. I mean, the very idea that we can touch, that we can move the heart of God, that this holy, transcendent God would make himself vulnerable to weak people like us. He didn't have to make himself vulnerable to us. He could have just hidden behind that veil of heaven and just kind of stayed at a distance because when you love, you open yourself up to pain. When you love and trust, you open yourself up to betrayal and to mistreatment. And, and who are we that, that that God of glory and power would open himself up in vulnerability to us and say, you know what, more than anything else, I want your love. And when you think of me, it overwhelms my heart. I mean, he is 
he is vulnerable to us weak and broken people. Like, we're not good at loving him. Like, I'm not. And he goes, even in your weak love, your weak attempts, you're like, you know, the three-year-old scribbling crayons on a piece of paper and handing it to your, your dad and just going, here, this is all I have to offer. He's overcome by that. It overwhelms him. His heart's filled with delight. Look at this in verse 10. He says, how fair is your love? How fair is your love? That's the declaration of the bridegroom, Christ, over your love right now. When he thinks of your love and your commitment to him, whether it's weak or strong, whether you've been walking with the Lord for one year or 40 years, he says, your love to me is fair and it's beautiful to me. It moves my heart and, and, and I'm attracted to it. I'm moving in your direction. I love you and I enjoy you. Could you believe that this could be true of you this morning? Beloved, this is good news to us. This is the gospel. This is part of the gospel of Christ. It's good news. It's news that's too good to be true. Because when I consider my own love, my, my own devotion, my own faithfulness to Christ, I'm just like, ah. And he says, no, that love to me is fair. It's beautiful. It moves me. He says this of her love, of your love. He says, how much better than wine? I think of wine in the scripture as symbolic of, of pleasure and delight and joy. It's the pleasures that, that you could have, you know, and, and in Song of Solomon 1, she's saying this about him. She's saying, I, your love is better than wine, than all of the worldly pleasures than all of the worldly delights. The, the bride is so touched and struck by the beauty of God. She says, I want you more than anything else. I will sacrifice anything to just come after you in Song of Solomon 1. I mean, that's a profound revelation in of itself. That God and the delight of God and the pleasures of knowing and loving God is greater than anything this world has to offer. But then when we get to chapter 4, and in this verse that we're looking at in verse 10, I mean, it just goes to another level of just staggering, like, Lord, help my, help my faith to actually believe that this is true. Because it's not just us considering God and going, your love is better than wine. It's God looking at us and saying, your love is better than wine. Now think about the power of God. And the power to reward himself and enjoy himself. I mean, he has all power and all pleasure and all money. I mean, if you're a billionaire, you can have whatever you want for dinner. Nobody's going to stop you. You don't have to go down to Aldi and figure out, like, how am I going to spend this $13 to get the best meal possible and feed my 18 children? You don't have to do that when you're a billionaire. So if you want it, baby, you got it. I mean, God, think about how wealthy God is when God's like, I'm gonna enjoy myself. I'm gonna take delight in something. He could have anything he wants. He could have a billion planets made of diamonds and just be like, these are mine, these are awesome. He could do whatever he wants. He looks at everything that is pleasurable and powerful, not just in the realm of the created order, but in the realm of the uncreated order. And he says, more than anything, 
I want your love. I mean, guys, this is, this is us. He's talking about forerunner church. He's talking about you. He's talking about me. He says, more than anything, he goes, I want your love and your affection. And when you look at me with just one glance, one prayer, one word comes out of your mouth, he says, I am overcome with joy. The transcendent, the holy God, the uncreated God, he's made himself vulnerable to us. We can get in there and touch his heart and mess with him. I mean, this is profound. Paragraph A, Jesus' heart is filled with extravagant passion for his people. Did you know that? Did you know that you, when you woke up this morning, there was, a, there was a resurrected man at the right hand of the Father with all power and all authority, whose victory is sure, and he's waiting till his enemies become his footstool, and he's waiting to rule and reign. He's waiting to rule and reign with you, and his heart is burning with passion over your life. Nobody can stop him. Nobody can turn off that desire. He's just like, I am the God of fire. Our God is a consuming fire, Isaiah tells us. He says, my heart is so filled with fiery passion and zeal. I am considering you and I am burning with zeal and love and affection for you even this morning. Your circumstances don't change the way that the heart of the Father feels. Your circumstances don't change the way that the zeal of the bridegroom burns with affection. Your circumstances don't change it. Your life doesn't change it. He loves you not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done to you. He changed you. Fundamentally, he changed you. He made you compatible with him. He made you his own. He made you a son. He made you a daughter. He says, you are my bride. You can't talk me out of the way I feel about you. Many wives, they don't feel beautiful. And they might express that to their spouse. They might say, well, I don't feel beautiful. But just because they say that doesn't change the way that the faithful, loving husband feels about his bride. He says, I don't care. I don't care. I, I can't turn off my heart and the way that I feel toward you. I just love you, and I, I'm in love with you, and my affection is toward you. And we're trying to convince God that we're not worth his love and his affection. We're trying to tell him, well, Lord, you can't really delight in me. You can't really enjoy me. Look, here's the long list of my weaknesses and my failure. Here's how I come up short in my devotional life. Here's how I come up short in my marriage. Here's how I come up short in my devotion to you and my love for you. And he says, your love is fair to me. Your love is beautiful. Your love is powerful. It's apprehended my heart. My heart is, at, is overcome. It's ravished. By your love towards me, even when it's, in your eyes, weak and small and insignificant. So the question is, are we going to talk God out of how he feels? Or is he going to talk us out of what we believe? 
We can argue with God all day long, but guess what? Our life is a vapor and we're a creature and he is holy and transcendent. And if he has said it, we might consider that it's actually truer than our emotions, truer than our feelings, truer than our pain, truer than our past. It's truer because he said it. And if he says it, it's true and it's real and it's steadfast and it's irremovable. It's unshakable. That's the word of God. Scripture describes the heart of the bridegroom as overcome with emotions and joyous affection for his people. This is his primary feeling and posture towards the body of Christ. The very body of Christ that we think is so jacked up and so haggard and, and just get your act together and what are you doing? Of course, we're never talking about us. We're talking about the other people, the other body of Christ over there. They're just so messed up. If they would just do these three things, then they would, what? Well, they'd be like you. And Jesus is like, I, I'm gonna have a beautiful and a glorious church and she's gonna be radiant and she's gonna come up out of that desert, that end of the age experience, leaning on me, purified in love. She's gonna love me with a pure devotion that the earth has never seen before. I'm gonna shock the principalities and powers. I'm gonna shock the rulers of this age. I'm gonna humble the wise, all the mighty. I'm gonna humble all of them. I'm going to show that the base things, what the world has called base, what the world has called dumb, what the world has called a waste of their life, I'm gonna show those things as mighty and I'm gonna vindicate my people. The weakness of the cross the foolishness of the cross. It will never seem wise to the present powers of this age. The Lord will establish his purposes in the earth. Paragraph B, many people find difficulty in grasping this truth of the passionate grace of God. It's because they still try and they still think they're trying to fix themselves up to get God to enjoy them. They still think that they have to, there's some other work to them that must be done in order for the bridegroom to be betrothed to them, in order for him to delight in them. There's some other work that I must do in order to get God to enjoy me. And I wanna tell you that Jesus speaks even to the most weak and immature believer, to the one that's falling down 10 times a day and yet rising 10 times in the grace of God and in the forgiveness of God and he speaks right to them and he declares over them his affection and his delight. And he says, if you stay with this conversation, I will cause your heart to be so confident in my love that you will be unshakable by the exterior storms. You'll be unshakable when the trials of life hit you. You won't be drowning in sorrow. You'll be singing with joy. Paul and Silas sang in the prison. We're not even in prison. We barely sing in church. <laughs> he wants to transform something in us. He wants us connected into a, a, different, nor, uh, a different narrative and, and a different story. He wants our hearts to be in tune with the way that he feels about us. God will release revelation 
of these truths by the Spirit of God. It comes not through man, but through God. Romans 5.5, the Holy Spirit pours out the love of God into our hearts. The love of God is the delight of God. It's the affection of God. He pours it into our heart like water by the Spirit of God. Well, how many times does the Spirit of God need to be poured out? How much of the Holy Spirit can you have? In Luke 11, God will give to the measure of your asking. If you want more of the revelation of the delight of God and the love of God, all you have to do is ask for more. But it's given by the Spirit of God. Even now, the Spirit of God is touching the hearts of this spiritual family. He's touching our hearts and he's beginning to break down and wear down all of our excuses and all of our reasons why we're disqualified and all of our reasons why we should quit and just give up and throw in the towel on this whole Christianity thing. He's coming with a spirit of revelation to reveal the things that are hidden in the heart of God, the very affection and the delight. He's coming to pour them into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. That's why we pray for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's why for 20, 30, 40 years, this spiritual family has been crying out, Ephesians 1.17, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ. It is not just information. It is about encounter and power on the inside to believe that which is true about the way the bridegroom feels. He wants to convince you of how much he loves you. Do you know how hard that is? Have you ever tried to do that to someone? <laughs> No, 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 I really like you. I don't know. We got trust issues with God. That's the real bottom line. We've got trust issues. We're like, well, I know you love me and you paid for my sins supposedly, but let me just work hard to try and help you and add to my own righteousness and I'm gonna argue with you. And he's like, well, there's only one of us that hung on the cross and paid the penalty of sin and claimed victory over the whole cosmos and it's me. So it's really only my way. Your arguments are... I mean, we just, we need to stop reading the Bible and, and arguing with it. Like, even, I'm not saying don't ask questions. I'm not just saying, you know, whatever. Like, we got to, you know, ask questions and be Bereans and blah, 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 all that stuff. But I'm just saying, like, what if we just took the word of God and we assumed that it was true just for five minutes and then read it and then went, what does this mean for me? See, that's Authority. The carnal man, the worldly man, the worldly mind is trained to come with our own self-sufficient authority. We come to the word of God and we assert our opinion here. There's no way that God would say, you are fair. No way. Because I know me. See, who's in the authority in that conversation? It's not God. It's you. The Lord, the bridegroom, the king. One kingdom, not your kingdom, his kingdom. One law, one rule, one God. He says, this is what I'm saying. I want you to believe it. I want you to come under the authority of God. I want you to come under the authority of Scripture. Do you know that I designed you and, and I formed you and, and, and I have precious thoughts towards you? Psalm 139 tells us. And he says, many, many are my thoughts toward you. I just delight in you. You just need to actually believe that. Get on board with what I think and what I say and, and what I feel. 
What does it mean that God's heart is ravished? Verse nine says that you've ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, you've ravished my heart with one look of your eye. To be ravished means to be overcome. It means to cause emotions of joy and delight. It means to be unusually attracted to something, uh, uh, something that's pleasing to you, something that's striking to you, to be in this state of, of ecstasy and joy. That's how God feels about your love. Think about that. And if you're not wrestling with that thought, you're not doing it right. Like, if you, when we consider the gospel of Christ and the revelation of God's affection, if there isn't something that's in, in us that goes, whoa, 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 hold on a second, hold on a second, hold on a second. Slow this down. You're telling me that that perfect God feels this way about me right now? See, that, that feeling, that tension, that's the good news. That's part of the gospel. That's why the gospel is rejected across the nations of the earth because it seems too good to be true. And if it's, if it's not too good to be true, it's probably not gospel truths. It seems too good to be true. How could a God like that love me? And he goes, well, it didn't just happen. He said, I sent my son to take on your sin, to bear your guilt and your failure so that you would become the righteousness of God. You were guilty, but I transformed your guilt. I didn't sweep it under the rug. I didn't take all your sins and just kind of act like they didn't happen, like we're prone to do. I didn't just sweep it under the rug. I paid for it with royal blood. My son poured out his life for the joy set before him on the cross. And he cried out his final words on the cross. It is finished. He finished the work upon the cross. He secured your destiny. He secured the payment of your sin. He bore the wrath of God and he filled his people with his delight. He wants to display the radical affections of his heart towards you even this morning. Very few believers on page two connect with this in any type of consistent way. And I want to tell you that it is the key of living a joy-filled Christian life. We need Christians who actually love and enjoy being Christians. <laughs> We're trying to invite people to church and evangelize the gospel. It looks like we've bitten to a lemon. The first thing we tell people when they come to church, like, Hey, don't be disruptive, don't cuss, don't drink, don't smoke. And the people are like, hey, quit telling me what not to do. What can I do? Can I enjoy anything? We got, there's so many believers, they've never actually enjoyed God because they don't know that God enjoys them. What would happen if just a whole, just a whole slew of us just got convinced that God actually liked us and delighted in us? Maybe, maybe it would be provoking 
to unbelievers. Maybe people would be like, huh, something is different about you. Because right now we look and sound like everybody else. We're just cranky. We complain about the same things and we're all tired, you know? (laughs) How are you doing? I'm tired. Look at this, paragraph D. Paul encouraged the church to break down strongholds of the mind. You know what a stronghold is? It's a fortified collection of thoughts that are in agreement with the devil. It's a fortified collection. See, what, and what, what's happening is God is besieging your mind like a general. He's besieging it. He's waging warfare on it. And what did they do back in those ancient times? They would cut off all the water supplies. They would cut off all the trade routes. They would cut off all the, uh, the, the other militaries that could join the fight. They would cut off everything. They would put those people they were trying to conquer on an island. God is trying to conquer you and convince you of the power of his redemptive love to convince you of the power of his affection and his emotion and that he is the only way that you would be granted eternal life. That he's the only way that you would have access to the Father and live forever, that it's him. So he's gonna put you on an island and he's gonna cut off all those streams in your life that are bringing in the resources to re-fortify those lies about who God is. He's not afraid. He's not afraid to trouble you. He's not afraid to, to let trial and pressure and pain touch your life because he's trying to cut off those supply routes that are reinforcing lies about who he is, and he is going to conquer the heart of his bride, the heart of his people. Paul goes, let's just agree with him. Let's just break down strongholds. How do we do this? At the, at the most basic, fundamental level, we take the truths of God's word and we speak them over ourselves in faith, actually believing that they're true. We put ourselves in the passage. I put myself in there. I have ravished your heart, Jesus. <laughs> you, You enjoy my love and my devotion to you. Even though it feels weak, you like it. How is this true? Show me. Show me. I want to connect with your heart. I want to connect with your emotions. I want to connect. We just talk to God. We get it into the language of our heart and mind. We get it into our meditation. We set aside the meditations of complaint We set aside the meditations of distraction and worry and all the things that are out of our control anyway. We set aside those and we fill our meditations with the truth of God's word. We let that battering ram just come into the castle of our soul and just start blasting stuff. Because God will tear down before he begins to build up. He will deconstruct lies before he begins to grow the seeds of truth within our own souls. The way that we destroy strongholds is by agreeing with God about how he thinks and feels about us through the word and in prayer. False ideas about the knowledge of God or wrong ideas about God's delight over us, it actually damages that intimate fellowship and relationship that we're called to have with Christ. It damages them. 
See those thoughts and those feelings that, that pervade our minds so easily, like, like shame and, and condemnation. When those thoughts come in, like you are disqualified because God has, you know, he's done with you. You've gone too far. See those as doing damage to the very fellowship that Christ purchased on the cross to have with you. See them as threats. Don't just let them run their course. Don't just like stop them. When you come under a spirit of condemnation and accusation, stop those thoughts by taking the word of God, which is the sword, right? It's the offensive weapon of, of Ephesians chapter six and actually do damage towards those lies and those strongholds that are trying to apprehend you. When those negative emotions rise, when the enemy starts to remind you of your past and your guilt and how, how dirty you are and how rejected you are and how worthless you are, rise up. Don't just let it run its course. Rise up. Go, no. No. This is not true of me. Christ says something different of me. The Father says something different of me. The Word of God says something different than the feelings of accusation and shame and guilt that are plaguing my soul. How did Jesus prepare weak and sincere people? Paragraph three. Because he doesn't just delight in the mature, but he delights in the weak. And he delights in just the sincere, the child. He fully delights in them. The way that he prepared them was to speak repeatedly of God's love and his desire for them. He spoke to a bunch of weak and immature men, the apostles, the disciples at the Last Supper. He said, trouble is coming. Pressure is coming. Pressure you can't even foresee. You can't even picture it right now. He said, trouble is coming. He said, but I know what to do to prepare you. You've got to be rooted in the revelation of my love and my affection for you. That's the only thing that's gonna keep you. It's not knowledge. It's not where to run and how to outrun the, 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 the temple guards and the religious leaders and how to outsmart the Roman Empire and how to topple it all. That's not what's gonna keep you. What's gonna keep you is the revelation of my heart and my affection for you. And here's what's great is that everyone, every believer can do that and go on the journey of it. If it was left up to our intelligence and our gifting and our savvy and all that, like who could stand? Who's actually gonna make it through? But he goes, no, it's the issues of the heart. It's things that are germane to every individual. The playing field is level at the cross and I'm there to convince the world of my love and my affection for them. And if you get convinced of that, you will endure the dark hour that is coming upon you. He spoke repeatedly of the Father's love and, and his own love, even though he knew they would all deny him and they would all flee from him in his greatest hour of trouble. These affirmations of his love were spoken to weak yet sincere believers. You may be in this room and you think, I'm not that weak. I'm, I'm a little bit older in the Lord. That's fantastic. Help us convince the young, sincere believers that their love means something to God. Disciple the next generation into understanding the affections of Christ 
and his heart that is fully devoted to them. That their songs, that they sing to God, that their prayers, that it all matters and it all deeply and profoundly moves the heart of Jesus Christ. At the Last Supper, Jesus emphasized these three things. Number one, he emphasized the son's affection for us. We've lost the, the, the meaning of the word love among even our prevalent culture right now, so let's just use the word affection. <laughs> Doesn't it just kind of hit you a little bit differently? It does for me. Jesus feels affection towards me. I like that. Everybody loves me. Somebody told me that at Costco. I don't even know them. Just like, yeah, yeah, skin is here, hair, cool, cool, cool. Love you, bro. Every, apparently, we all love everything and love each other, but let's just set that language aside, okay? Let's talk about affection and delight. That's what we want. Anyway, everyone wants to know that someone has affection towards them and has delight towards them. Who doesn't want to hear that? It's a craving of the human heart. God hardwired you to just be this vacuum for love and affection and acceptance. He goes, I'm, I will give it to you. I am giving it to you. My heart, my affection, my desire, it is all fully and freely pointed in your direction. He goes, just start receiving it. Start believing it. Start declaring it. Start living like it's true. Start telling it to others. Start leading like it's true. Run your marriages like it's true. Run your families like it's true. Run your business like it's true that you are God's absolute favorite and he would give up anything just to have you and he did and he gave up his only son. He did it. He already proved it. Paul tells us in Romans 5 verse 8 that it was God's love demonstrated to us. He demonstrated his love. He didn't just talk about it. He put his feet where his mouth was and he showed up on the scene. He goes, I am gonna prove to you that my delight is in you and I'm in this thing for you. I'll go all the way. John 13, at the very beginning, says that he loved them to the very end. God will love you to the very end. His affection will carry you through every storm so that you experience his glory and his power forever and ever. Beloved, this is really good news. Secondly, in that Last Supper upper room discourse, he convinced, convinced us of the Father's affection for us. He says, if you, if you like the way I love you, just wait till you meet my Father. Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. He's the image of the invisible God. Everything that the Father wanted to make known to us, it is manifest to us through the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ. They're not different people. The Father is not an angry dad up in the sky with a big stick, and Jesus is like the older brother that's protecting us from like the dad that's out of control. Jesus is the express image of the Father. If you like Jesus, you're really gonna like the Father. You're really gonna like him. I mean, they're in complete agreement on everything, especially you. And they love you and they want you and they're, they're after you. Not only that, but the Lord wants to convince us that the quality 
of affection that is shared in the Godhead is going to be imparted to the body of Christ. He's going to give us that which is in his own heart. He's going to, we're going, Lord, I don't know how to love you. He's going, I'm going to help you love me in the way that I want to be loved because I've brought you into fellowship with me. I'm going to give you power to love me. He doesn't just leave us as orphans. He doesn't just leave us kind of halfway done, like a halfway rehab house that didn't make it all the way to completion. He says, no, I will finish the work that I started. I will put my spirit in you. You will be a temple of my spirit, and I will cause you to love me in the way that I want to be loved so we can share in this thing together. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. God's ravished heart is a key revelation necessary for the end time church. Y'all, we can't go through suffering and persecution without the revelation that God is absolutely for us and that his heart burns with delight over us. He's gonna establish it in the generation of the Lord's return. I don't know when that is, but he's going to establish it. He's gonna have his people so convinced of his love and power that they're gonna be singing and rejoicing in the greatest hour of confusion and pain and global war the earth has ever seen. Imagine, the church will be the brightest when the world is in its darkest. The church will be filled with joy as the earth is bound in despair. He's gonna cause it to happen at the exact same time. And we've got to get a hold of this message. We've got to put it into the next generation. We've got to convince our kids of it. We've got to tell them, you are the delight of the Lord, not because of what you do, but because of how he feels about you. Not because of what you do, but because of what he did to you at the cross. You've got to whisper it in their ear at night. You've got to lead your family. You've got to disciple people into these truths into these realities. The world needs convinced that God's affection is abounding towards them. I mean, overflowing. I love the prayer in Philippians 1.9, that we would have exceeding abundant love, that it would be overflowing, like too much love, too much affection, too much delight in God. That your cup would overflow, it says in Psalm 23. Causes your cup to overflow. God doesn't want us just getting by. Just here's enough of my love to kind of get you through there. No, he wants us to abound. Why? So it spills out to other people. It's not enough to know what he has done for us on the cross or what he will do in a coming revival in eternity. The Holy Spirit wants us to know how he feels, what he sees, what he wants. He wants to convince us of his own heart. I'm gonna invite the worship team to go ahead and come out. God's extravagant delight in his people will be revealed to us in a fresh way by the Spirit as we ask for it. As we ask for as we go on the journey, we say, you know what? I don't know about that whole emotions of God, delight of God, affections of God, but I'll go on the journey. I'll, I'll kind of dip my toe in the water. Others of you, you've already like head first in. Your life is such a mess. You're like, okay, somebody likes me. I'm in. Oh, I can see it. I can see it right now in your faces. You're just like, you're so, this is the best news that you've heard in months. You're just like, thank you, Lord. We gotta get, we gotta get into this message. 
This is about the revelation of the bridegroom. The bridegroom, beloved, he's coming for his bride. That's you. He's a bridegroom. He's a bridegroom filled with emotion and power. He's not just a king. He's not just a judge. He is a bridegroom who burns with zeal for his people, who burns with zeal for the Jewish people and the nation of Israel. Let's stand. Scripture convinces us that at the new birth, we who were previously dead on the inside became alive in Christ. Romans 8 convinces us that the Spirit of God is now within us and cries out, Abba, Father, because now we know him as Father. We know Jesus as our bridegroom because of the Spirit of God. And I want to declare something over you today from Isaiah 62, verse 4. I invite you to close your eyes if you'd like. Put out your hands like you're receiving a gift. You don't have to, but I just want to invite you to. Isaiah 62, verse 4. You shall be called Hephzibah. It's a new name that the Lord wants to write on some of your hearts now by faith in a fresh way. It's already true of you, but you need to be reminded of it. God has changed your name. He's changed your nature. He's changed who you are by the power of the Holy Spirit. You've got a new name, Hephzibah. What does that mean? That sounds weird. It means this, the Lord delights in you. Think about that. The first thing he does, he changes your name and your nature. You're given a new name. You've adopted the name that he wants to call you. What does he firstly and chiefly want you to know? You are the delight of God. You're his delight. He could have anything, but he wants you. He could go after anyone, but he came after you. He could reveal his power and his majesty and his glory and his heart to anyone, but he's going to reveal it to you. He's coming after you. The old revivalist used to call him the great hound of heaven. He's on your trail. He's picked up your scent. He's hunting you down because he's going to convince you of the power of his affection and his delight over your life. Thank you, God. Holy Spirit, we ask in the name of Jesus that you would release a spirit of revelation upon our heart, that you would convince us of that which is eternal, of that which is powerful, of that which is from another age, that you do, in fact, delight in me. You delight in us. You delight in the body of Christ. You delight in the Presbyterians and the Baptists and the... You delight in your people, my God. We ask that this would be a new name that would sweep across this generation, that our children would be raised in the house of God where they will know I am the delight of God. I hold my head up high. I approach the throne of grace with boldness. I don't come sheepishly into the prayer room. I come boldly into the prayer room because I'm the delight of God. We ask that you would release your power and your affection and that would drive out lies. Lies that the enemy has sold, tried to sow through pain, through trauma, through setbacks, through disappointment, on and on and on. All the pain that we carry, we lay that at the cross now. We lay it at the cross. The old man has passed away. Behold. The Lord makes all things new. You are Hephzibah. 
If you are born again and you've put your faith in Christ as your Savior, you are Hephzibah. The delight of God is for you.
next couple minutes. This whole room is an altar. Wherever you're at, joining us online, it's an altar before the Lord. If you'd like to receive prayer, just step out onto the aisle and raise your hand. We're gonna continue to sing. We want this whole place to be a place of encounter right now. The Holy Spirit wants to convince us of the love, the burning passion of the bridegroom. I'm gonna declare this over you from Song of Solomon 4. Behold, you are fair, my love. This is what he's speaking over you. You are fair. Your love is fair. Your love moves me. It touches my heart. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. That means the single-minded focus on the Lord. That's how the Lord sees us, even in our weakness. Verse 9, the bridegroom says over you, you have ravished my heart. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eye, one glance, one turning. It overcomes me. This is how I feel about you. Your love is better than wine. Holy Spirit, come, minister to us, my God. Convince us, touch us, touch our hearts. Just anyone that's in the aisle with their hand raised and you see them and want to put a hand on them. We want the body to minister to the body right now. Release the Spirit of God in this place. of your eye, you move me. Let the sound of my voice, your heart is Delight, says the Lord. Your love 